Good evening. I hope you've had a wonderful day today. Welcome to BVJ's Bedtime Stories. My name is Big Voice Jay, and this is a show where we get you ready for a great night's sleep with some old familiar stories that you haven't heard in a while. Links to every story can be found in the show notes at our website, bedtimewithbvj.com. Tonight we continue our story, The Repairer of Reputations, by Robert W. Chambers. I heard a door open but did not heed it. It was only when I saw two faces in the mirror, it was only when another face rose over my shoulder, and two other eyes met mine. I wheeled like a flash and seized a long knife from my dressing table, and my cousin sprang back very pale, crying, Hildred, for God's sake! Then as my hand fell, he said, It is I, Lewis. Don't you know me? Stood silent. I could not have spoken for my life. He walked up to me and took the knife from my hand. What is all this? he inquired in a gentle voice. Ill? No, I replied. But I doubt if he heard me. Come, come, old fellow, he cried. Take off that brass crown and toddle into the study. Are you going to a masquerade? What's all this theatrical tinsel anyway? I was glad he thought the crown was made of brass and paste, yet I didn't like him any the better for thinking so. I let him take it from my hand, knowing it was best to humor him. He tossed a splendid diadem in the air and, catching it, turned to me, smiling. It's dear at fifty cents, he said. What's it for? I did not answer, but took the circlet from his hands and, placing it in the safe, shut the massive steel door. The alarm ceased its infernal din at once. He watched me curiously, but did not seem to notice the sudden ceasing of the alarm. He did, however, speak of the safe as a biscuit box. Fearing lest he might examine the combination, I led the way into my study. Lewis threw himself on the sofa and flicked at flies with his eternal riding whip. He wore his fatigue uniform with a braided jacket and jaunty cap, and I noticed that his riding boots were all splashed with red mud. Where have you been? I inquired. Jumping mud creeks in Jersey, he said. I haven't had time to change yet. I was rather in a hurry to see you. Haven't you got a glass of something? I'm dead tired. Been in the saddle twenty-four hours. I gave him some brandy from my medicinal store, which he drank with a grimace. Oh, that's awful, he observed. I'll give you an address where they sell brandy that is brandy. It's good enough for my needs, I said indifferently. I use it to rub my chest with. He stared and flicked at another fly. See here, old fellow, he began. I've got something to suggest to you. It's four years now that you've shut yourself up here like an owl, never going anywhere, no taking any exercise, doing nothing but poring over those books up there on the mantelpiece. He glanced along the row of shelves. Napoleon, 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 he read. For heaven's sake, have you nothing but Napoleons there? I wish they were bound in gold, I said, but wait. Yes, there is another book. The King in Yellow. I looked him steadily in the eye. Have you ever read it? I asked. I? No, thank God. I don't want to be driven crazy. 
I saw he regretted his speech as soon as he had uttered it. There is only one word which I loathe more than I do lunatic, and that word is crazy. But I controlled myself and asked him why he thought the king in yellow was dangerous. Oh, I don't know, he said hastily. I only remember the excitement it created and the denunciations from pulpit and press. I believe the author shot himself after bringing forth this monstrosity, didn't he? I understand he's still alive, I answered. That's probably true, he muttered. Bullets couldn't kill a fiend like that. It is a book of great truths, I said. Yes, he replied, of truths which send men frantic and blast their lives. I don't care if the thing is, as they say, the very supreme essence of art. It's a crime to have written it, and I, for one, shall never open its pages. Is that what you've come to tell me? I asked. No, he said. I came to tell you that I'm going to be married. I believe for a moment my heart ceased to beat, but I kept my eyes on his face. Yes, he continued, smiling happily. Married to the sweetest girl on earth. Constance Hallberg, I said mechanically. How did you know, he cried, astonished. I didn't know it myself until that evening last April, when we strolled down to the embankment before dinner. When is it to be, I asked. It was to have been next September, but an hour ago a dispatch came ordering our regiment to the Presidio, San Francisco. We leave at noon tomorrow. Tomorrow, he repeated. Just think, Hildred. Tomorrow I shall be the happiest fellow that ever drew breath in this jolly world, for Constance will go with me. I offered him my hand in congratulation, and he seized it and shook it like the good-natured fool he was, or pretended to be. I'm going to get my squadron as a wedding present, he rattled on. Captain and Mrs. Louis Castain, eh, Hildred? Then he told me where it was to be and who were to be there, and made me promise to come and be best man. I set my teeth and listened to his boyish chatter without showing what I felt, but I was getting to the limit of my endurance, and when he jumped up and, switching his spurs till they jingled, said he must go, did not detain him. There's one thing I want to ask of you, I said quietly. Out with it, it's promised, he laughed. I want you to meet me for a quarter of an hour's talk tonight. Of course, if you wish, he said, somewhat puzzled. Where? Anywhere in the park there. What time, Hildred? Midnight. What in the name of... He began, but checked himself and laughingly assented. I watched him go down the stairs and hurry away, his saber banging at every stride. He turned into Bleecker Street and I knew he was going to see Constance. I gave him ten minutes to disappear and then followed in his footsteps taking with me the jeweled crown and the silken robe embroidered with the yellow sign. When I turned into Bleecker Street and entered the doorway which bore the sign, Mr. Wilde, Repairer of Reputations, Third Bell, I saw old Harbark moving about in his shop and imagined I heard Constance's voice in the parlor, but I avoided them both and hurried up the trembling stairways to Mr. Wilde's apartment. I knocked and entered without ceremony. Mr. Wilde lay groaning on the floor, his face covered with blood, his clothes torn to shreds. Drops of blood were scattered about over the carpet, which had also been ripped and frayed in the evidently recent struggle. It's that cursed cat, he said, ceasing his groans and turning his colorless eyes to me. 
She attacked me while I was asleep. I believe she will kill me yet. This was too much, so I went into the kitchen and, seizing a hatchet from the pantry, started to find the infernal beast and settle her then and there. My search was fruitless, and after a while I gave it up and came back to find Mr. Wilde squatting on his high chair by the table. He had washed his face and changed his clothes. The great furrows which the cat's claws had plowed up in his face he had filled with collodion, and a rag hid the wound in his throat. I told him I should kill the cat when I come across her, but he only shook his head and turned to the open ledger before him. He read name after name of the people who had come to him in regard to their reputation, and the sums he had amassed were startling. I put on the screws now and then, he explained. One day or other, some of these people will assassinate you, I insisted. Do you think so, he said, rubbing his mutilated ears. It was useless to argue with him, so I took down the manuscript entitled Imperial Dynasty of America, for the last time I should ever take it down in Mr. Wilde's study. I read it through, thrilling and with pleasure. When I had finished, Mr. Wilde took the manuscript and, turning to the dark passage which leads from his study to his bedchamber, called out in a loud voice, Vance! Then, for the first time, I noticed a man crouching there in the shadow. How I had overlooked him during my search for the cat, I cannot imagine. Vance, come in, cried Mr. Wilde. The figure rose and crept towards us, and I shall never forget the face that he raised to mine as the light from the window illuminated it. Vance, this is Mr. Castain, said Mr. Wilde. Before he had finished speaking, the man threw himself on the ground before the table, crying and grasping, Oh, God! Oh, God! Help me! Forgive me! Oh, Mr. Castain, keep that man away! You cannot! You cannot mean it! You are different! Save me! I am broken down. I was in a madhouse. And now, when all was coming together... When I had forgotten the king, the king in yellow, and but I shall go mad again, I shall go mad. His voice died into a choking rattle, for Mr. Wilde had leapt on him and his right hand encircled the man's throat. When Vance fell in a heap on the floor, Mr. Wilde clambered nimbly into his chair again, and rubbing his mangled ears with the stump of his hand, turned to me and asked for the ledger. I reached it down from the shelf and he opened it. After a moment searching among the beautifully written pages, he coughed complacently and pointed to the name Vance. Vance, he read aloud. Osgood Oswald Vance. At the sound of his name, the man on the floor raised his head and turned a convulsed face to Mr. Wilde. His eyes were injected with blood, his lips tumefied. Called April 28th, continued Mr. Wilde. Occupation, cashier in the Seaforth National Bank, has served a term of forgery at Sing Sing, from whence he was transferred to the asylum for the criminal insane. Pardoned by the governor of New York and discharged from the asylum, January 19, 1918. Reputation damaged at Sheepshead Bay. Rumors that he lives beyond his income, reputation to be repaired at once. Retainer, $1,500. Note, has embezzled sums amounting to 30000 since March 20, 1919, Excellent family and secured present position through uncle's influence. Father, president of Seaforth Bank. I looked at the man on the floor. Get up, Vance, said Mr. Wilde in a gentle voice. Vance rose as if hypnotized. 
He will do as we suggest now, observed Mr. Wilde, and opening the manuscript, he read the entire history of the Imperial Dynasty of America. Then in a kind and soothing murmur, he ran over the important points with Vance, who stood like one stunned. His eyes were so blank and vacant that I imagined he had become half-witted and remarked it to Mr. Wilde, who replied that it was of no consequence anyway. Very patiently we pointed out to Vance what his share in the affair would be, and he seemed to understand after a while. Mr. Wilde explained the manuscript, using several volumes on heraldry, to substantiate the result of his researches. He mentioned the establishment of the dynasty in Carcosa, the lakes which connected Hester, Aldebaran, and the mystery of the Hyades. He spoke of Casilda and Camilla and sounded the cloudy depths of Danae and the Lake of Halley. The scalloped titers of the king in yellow must hide you till forever, he muttered. But I do not believe Vance heard him. Then by degrees he led Vance along the ramifications of the imperial family, to Uot and Tale, from Natalba and Phantom of Truth to Aldones, and then tossing aside his manuscript and notes, he began the wonderful story of the last king. Fascinated and thrilled, I watched him. He threw up his head. His long arms were stretched out in a magnificent gesture of pride and power, and his eyes blazed deep in their sockets like two emeralds. Vance listened, stupefied. As for me, when at last Mr. Wilde had finished, and pointing to me, cried, The cousin of the king! My head swam with excitement. Controlling myself with a superhuman effort, I explained to Vance why I alone was worthy of the crown, and why my cousin must be exiled or die. I made him understand that my cousin must never marry, even after renouncing all his claims, and how that least of all he should marry the daughter of the Marquis of Avonshire and bring England into the question. I showed him a list of thousands of names which Mr. Wilde had drawn up. Every man whose name was there had received the yellow sign, which no living human being dared disregard. The city, the state, the whole land were ready to rise and tremble before the pallid mask. We'll continue this story on our next episode. I want to remind you that we're always on the hunt for great stories like this one to read. If you know of any, let us know. Email bigvoicej at gmail.com. We've got a YouTube channel for your enjoyment. You can go to tiny.cc slash bvjbedtime. Don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. It helps us to spread the word. It helps to spread the word that we're putting people to sleep every single night. And if you'd like to support the show, there's a there's a buy me a coffee link on every page and post. Thank you so much for listening. Good night. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>